Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together Bruce and I have written three dozen, well, one short, but a third dozen is coming out this fall, three dozen cookbooks, including the Instant Pot Bible, an Instant Pot Bible copycat recipes, which someone was kind enough to say on Facebook this last week is the best book we ever wrote, <laughs> Instant Pot Bible nice. copycat recipes. That's well, insane. Well, we have sold a quarter million copies of it. Yeah, uh, well, of the Instant Pot Bible, but not yeah. of Instant Pot copycat recipes that's just not yet that's just out now how to copycat your favorite uh, restaurant recipes in the instant pot which is a great way to keep your kitchen cool this summer an electric pressure cooker just saying okay but we're not talking anything about pressure cookers Mm -hmm. today we're going to talk about food shortages (laughs) which seems like a real downer wow how do we get into this we're going to do a one minute cooking tip bruce has an interview with lucas vogler uh, who i have followed on instagram for five thousand years and i'm very excited to hear that and we're going to talk about what's making us happy in food this week so let's get started A lot of things went missing when COVID started. Remember? Toilet paper. Oh, you could look. How many rolls did we order from officesupply.com? No, we ordered? Well, how many rolls did you? And I let's put tell it this you. way. COVID started, the lockdown started in March 2020. Uh, correct. And this is now June of 2022, correct. and we still haven't used all the toilet paper we have not, I ordered from officesupply.com. We have not still We're getting there. There's only a few rolls left. We, a few. I just counted. There's like 30 rolls left <laughs> that we still have to get through. So eat a lot of fiber and get through them. So I just, Remember you couldn't find yeast? There was a time oh you couldn't get chicken? No. It's right. so weird. Because everybody went to bread baking, and so everybody was wanting yeast, and so suddenly there these shortages of yeast everywhere. Because people didn't know what to do in lockdown and they were just sitting at home making bread, which just cracked me up because bread making is not where I would start my cooking adventures. I well, think bread making is hard. It is, but it's also the reason why they kept calling it the COVID-15, the 15 mm. pounds we all mm. added during mm. COVID because mm. we're eating too much bread. What and... happened to my COVID-50? <laughs> <laughs> so what can I tell you? Um, okay, then. So it goes. But anyway, there are some weird things there that are, some are now things. showing up or there's expected to be shortages of, like... Buttered popcorn? And this is a really weird one, buttered popcorn, because it doesn't actually have that much to do with popcorn. Yes, popcorn is becoming harder to get because of supply chain problems and because so much corn is being grown that is not popcorn. Any available corn space is Mm -hmm. corn. All that's true, but really, this is about the tubs that it comes in, right? The butter-resistant films that coats the insides of the tubs is getting harder for manufacturers to find and get, (laughs) and so... So the problem is they can't put the butter popcorn in the they can't there's nothing to put them in because then this the mm-hmm. uh, the movie theaters can't get the tub. So I want to have my buttered popcorn in a paper in a brown paper bag so that it kind of falls apart in my lap halfway through. Well, I just say bring a bag of potato chips with you and let that be the end. Well, it it is interesting that it is the coating on the containers in movie theaters that is causing this alleged shortage of buttered popcorn. So again, get your buttered popcorn. <laughs> Corn while you can. And did you know that there is a mm, there is a shortage of refrigerator rolls and biscuits? This just cracks Pop and me Fresh up. is not available everywhere. Well, General Mills is the company that owns Pillsbury, and they claim an acute supply shortage is due to supply chain disruptions, ingredient shortages, and labor shortages. I have this sneaking suspicion it's the last, really. Yeah, labor, labor shortages. shortages. Well, the problem was worse in December, January, February, but now it's June. So they're expecting to get back somewhat, but only to meet 80% of the upcoming demand.
demand. So uh, upcoming, is there going to be a run on refrigerator but rolls here's and biscuits? The thing about biscuits. Fresh? Biscuits are easy to make, and there are so many good baking books about biscuits. There, there are. You can check out Natalie Dupree's and other books about biscuits and learn how to make your own. But if you don't want to, uh, we understand completely. Listen, half the time in my life, when I think about cooking, I think about cereal, and I write cookbooks for a living. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so refrigerator rolls and biscuits are in short supply, as are, believe it or not, Rice Krispies. What's that one about? And well, it's about the employees. See, it's all labor right now. It's about the employee strike. And listen, I'm not taking a political stance <laughs> one way or the other about the labor strike. But having been in my life an academic and thus a member of the Teamsters, I can honestly say that it's Teamster. not. Uh, that's me. I know all about Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> so um, I can honestly say I'm not Is taking he buried a, in the backyard? a political stance. I wish. <laughs> a political stand here. I mean, think how famous we could get if he was in our backyard. Anyway, um, there was an employee strike, and so Rice Krispies at the factory, and it is difficult. Well, to it lasted seventy-one days, it. didn't it? Yes, that was it a did. long strike, and it ended just this past Christmas, which was six months ago. But stores are just starting to get back ordered cereal, yep. and guess what? It's going to cost a buck or two more in box because, of course, everything's costing more. Um, so Rice Krispies, if you can find them, grab them. Don't you don't need to buy as many of that as I bought of toilet paper, but. That nobody <laughs> needs to buy as much. I, Bruce, really, honestly, when COVID hit, Bruce thought the apocalypse had come. And but I didn't like go to a store and clean it out. That was one thing. I refused to be that guy. I went to like an office supply mm-hmm. online mm-hmm. place yeah, and I had yeah, UPS yeah, delivered. Yeah. I'll tell you the difference between us. Bruce brought 700 rolls of toilet paper. And <laughs> 182. I, I bought like six cases of wine. So that tells you everything <laughs> you need to know about the two of us. Um, and the other thing that is in very short supply or is becoming in short supply is Girl Scout cookies, which is very strange. Well, it's not all of them. It's the Samoas, the Thin Mints, the Tagalongs, and it's everyone's saying it's hard to come by them. And it's because those particular ones are baked by little brownie bakers. Mm-hmm. It's a bakeries that services most of the Girl Scout areas, but those are the ones that bake, and they're mm-hmm. just not baking fast enough. And mm-hmm. there's all sorts of problems, and the Girl Scout troops can't get the cookies. It's really wild. And I also, may I say, just as an aside, I love the people who call the Samoas Samosa. <laughs> I have a box of samosas, please. I'm like, uh, Ooh, I does, wish the Girl Scouts made samosas. Does it come with a chutney then? Um, <laughs> samosas. I, I have to tell you that, look, what's this? We're sitting here. The samosas are my favorite ones. I am not, uh, and please don't at me on any social media platform, but I am But not, you're wrong. It's Thin Mints. I'm not a Thin Mints fan, and I am not. So what can I tell you? Don't at me. Don't don't hate me. I just don't understand the Thin Mint craze. I like the Samoas a lot. Well, they're chewy. Yeah. They're chewy and gooey and yeah. coconut and caramel. Yeah, they're good. The Thin Mints, they're, they're good. They're, they're, they're crunchy. And people are always like, oh, they're better out of the freezer. And I'm like, yeah, because you can't taste them. So that's why they're better out of the freezer. <laughs> I don't get the Thin Mint thing. It's just The it's Thin at- Mints are good when you like, sandwich two together with some marshmallow fluff. Then they're really good. <laughs> okay. Um, and then roll the edges in crushed peppermint candy. Mm, and there's your COVID-50, right? <laughs> there. See, it all comes back to the beginning. Okay. Those are some of the food shortages that are on the way to us or we are working through at the current moment. Up next, before we get to our one-minute cooking tip, I should say you can take a moment to subscribe to this podcast, to like it, to rate it, 
Even a simple comment like great podcast really helps us. Thank you very much. I thank each and every one of you who I see on the Apple Analytics who have done this. It's easy. Drop right down to the bottom of the screen. You can't rate us on Spotify or other platforms, but the bulk we know, we see the analytics, the bulk of our listeners come through Apple. So just jump down there to the bottom of the Apple podcast page and you can give us a rating as well as a comment. And that would be terrific. Okay, up next, segment two. As always, our one-minute cooking tip. Use an apple corer to make steak fries out of a potato. Now, okay, you're going to have to explain this to me because Bruce is the one who came up with this cooking tip. And at first, I didn't even understand what it meant. So what are you talking about here? (laughs) An apple corer is that round thing that, like, you push it down to an apple and it breaks the apple into even chunks Mm -hmm. and the center core separated. So you push it down on a potato and you end up with six wedges of potato and a cylinder potato in the middle. And isn't it better than to cut the potato? potato in half first widthwise because I can't imagine how I can stand a whole potato up on its end. Just cut a little bit off the end on the bottom so it lies flat because if you cut the whole thing in half, then your wedges get really small. And these are about making steak fries. Okay. Well, like seriously, I'm picturing me without fingers on a hand or something. Oh, oh so no. You have I'm, to be careful. I'm, I'm going to cut my potato widthwise in half. Notice that I'm the writer. So I, when I say in half, I add widthwise or lengthwise because I have to in cookbooks. So I'm always going to add that. Well, then you're just going to have smaller steak fries than I will. Well, good for me. So up next. Actually, no. Yours are going to be just as big as mine because I'm making your potatoes. Uh, when are you it, making potatoes? Can I get to the next segment, honestly? <laughs> up next, Bruce's interview with Lucas Folger, the author of Snacks for Dinner. I have followed Lucas for years on Instagram. It seems like I'm sure he's only 21, and so I'm sure it's not <laughs> been years. I'm sure it just seems like it in my ancient brain. But I love, he makes beautiful Instagram posts, gorgeous photography, and I am so excited that Lucas has decided to come on our podcast and talk about his new book, Snacks for Dinner. Okay, take it away, Bruce. This morning, I'm talking to Lucas Volger. He is an amazing food writer. His books are great. And his latest book is Snacks for Dinner. Hey, Lucas. Hi there. How are you? I'm good, thanks. You know, Mark and I have followed you on Instagram for a long time. And I have to say that we both love your approach to food. And I mean, all of your posts are beautiful. And your new book, Snacks for Dinner, has got to be the best way to approach dinner ever. (laughs) You say in the book that snacks for dinner implies that not everything has to be homemade. And I think that is a great point. So if you're buying stuff, where are your favorite sources for finding ready-made snacks to add to the dinner table? Well, one of the things I've noticed when I have been traveling is that farmer's markets, more and more, um, the vegetables and the produce is like a smaller part of the offerings. And there's more of these stands that offer, you know, wonderful local bread or um, there's at one of my farmer's markets that I go to, there's wonderful, like little Middle Eastern style salads and there's always cheeses and there's always locally made, carefully, thoughtfully made things. And so the farmer's market is oftentimes like the first place that I start there, especially if I'm having people over because you know, the food's going to be really thoughtful. But in general, I think locally support your local like cheese shops or the focused um, um, different types of ethnic groceries. I write in the book about the rise of these like what I call like micro bakeries. And I know that it's not just limited to bakeries, but um, throughout the pandemic, a number of pastry chefs who were put out of work with um, 
so many restaurants closing, took to Instagram to create a little marketplace for their baked goods. And a lot of them have had enough success now that, that this is now their full-time job. They're not even going back to restaurants. They're able to kind of support themselves through this new type of marketplace. I think one of the one of the fun things, one of the best ways to do it in the sort of show-stopping way, especially around entertaining, is to find um, the people that are really good at making what they do. Their you know salads, their baked goods, their desserts, their um, their snacks, and sourcing from them. Well, let's talk about entertaining. I mean, I really like that this approach you have isn't just when you or you and your husband are having dinner in front of the TV. Tell me what your snacky dinner parties are like. It's funny when I um, as I started writing this book prior to the pandemic, and then the pandemic came, and it became an incredibly efficient way to eat because. Uh, you know, a tortilla t- chip could become a spoon or the hummus container is a serving dish or, you know, just as a way to eliminate washing dishes, which I don't know if this is something you can relate to, but I was very tired of washing dishes in the heat of the pandemic. But then um, coming out of it and bringing people back into our house and having our friends over, I found this to be a really fun way of entertaining because it, it creates this sort of like dazzling spread that um, a lot of it you can sort of prepare in advance. And what I always like to do is have the food set out in advance. So right when they walk in, it's it's there on the table and you can see it. And I mean, inherent in the idea of snacks is that it's kind of fun food too. So it's like, it's very, it piques everybody's interest right away when there's like snack mix or I have a couple of different recipes for different ways to season popcorn and seeing a bowl of popcorn on the dinner table kind of throws people off in a, in a good way. And so, I don't know, I think that um, leaning into the abundance, creating that feeling of abundance, leaning into all the different types of vegetables that you can incorporate into a meal that makes it so colorful and makes it so interesting in every way. Um, I, I think that it just, uh, it, it's some kind of unexpected and it always impresses people when I, when I entertain this way, it's like the, really the, the abundance of what it comes down to and just being able to try a bunch of different things. And I also wanted to add that it's a great way when you're serving people with various dietary restrictions, there's something sort of modular about it. You know, everyone just creates their own plate and mixes and matches. And so if there's somebody who doesn't eat dairy. It's easy to have a number of like non-dairy dishes. It's really an easy way to sort of satisfy a lot of dietary needs. The idea of coming to a dinner table with a big bowl of popcorn there sounds fantastic. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> you divided the recipes in your book by their physical properties rather than by ingredients. So you've got chapters called crispy, crunchy and tangy, juicy. Start with crispy, crunchy. What are some of your favorite crispy, crunchy things to make? And how do they fit into a snacky dinner? Well, crispy, crunchy is, that's where my mind first went when I, the first goes when I think of snacks. And um, one of the first recipes in the book is where Chex Party Mix revisited, I think. It's a reference to the Chex Mix that I used to eat growing up. And it was always a fixture of like the Super Bowl spread. (laughs) And um, it's, uh, you know, I I included some like crunched up um, ramen noodles in there and give it a quite savory profile um, with some uh, coconut oil and soy sauce and some Aleppo chili. Um, so it's maybe a little bit more of an adult version of, uh, of Chex Mix, but um, the crispy crunchy, it really just satisfies the textural needs at the table, just kind of as a counterbalance to like a creamy dip or a juicy pickle, or um, you can sort of use them as garnishes on top of a soup or on top of a salad. And 
really just kind of like works to um, enliven the plate in that way. And it, it, it's, you know, it's probably one of these things that people when they're building a menu or they're building their own plates, they're subliminally, they know how to, you know, satisfy all these requirements. And, but I, I kind of like broken it down in a way where you're like, oh yeah, that's, that, that, that seems kind of obvious, like leading with the texture and then you can go into flavor after, after you satisfy the texture needs. Tangy juicy comes next. And from what I read in the book, it's all about marinated veggies, pickles, olives. Why is that flavor profile important as a component of snacky dishes at a meal? I think it's important because the acidity and the sort of, there's some fruity elements in there. It just brightens up the, the, the salty stuff and the savory stuff. It just, it just brings a lot of the acid and the, the brightness and also brings a lot of color to the plate. Those kind of function. There's one recipe there for marinated carrots where, you know, you can sort of cut up the carrots in any way you please. But um, I sort of like to leave those sort of large and almost treat them like a fork and knife job where, you know, it, it's more than just a pickle garnish. You can sort of cut it up. But then they, they, they oftentimes pair really well with the dips and pair, you know, you can sort of like create a little toast from the various snacks. If you've got some grilled bread and you've got a dip and then some pickles on top or maybe one of the salads for because as a garnish. Um, so I guess there's like a little bit of an interactive element in there as well. We all came to food uh, in different ways, but who taught you how to cook? I loved cooking with my mom growing up and she was uh, a sort of devout recipe collector. And I think that helped me just to develop a lot of respect for the recipe. You know, I've been thinking a lot about how she and I would flip through magazines and you would read a magazine that wasn't necessarily a food magazine, but it would include a recipe. She would always rip out the recipe because like this bonus, you know, this free thing, like the, the value, you can't believe you're getting this like recipe as you know, this is free. You got to keep that. There's a lot of value in this like recipe here. So she had manila folders that were full of all her recipe clippings. And so that's where I really, I think just sharing that with my mom was uh, hugely influential in like me loving to cook. And then this book, the sort of seed of it came to me when I was traveling out in California um, in a, the, at the end of 2019. Um, and a good friend of my mom's had me over for lunch. And it was one of these lunches that was sort of planned in advance. There was a little bit of ceremony to it. I hadn't seen her in a while. And so, you know, we were, you know, confirming all the plans. And then uh, when I got over to her house, <laughs> there hadn't, there weren't any signs of cooking. And so I was like, oh, no, this, you know, somebody who like, I do entertain a lot, but, you know, in my mind, one of the like cardinal rules is, you know, plan be ready so you can sort of enjoy yourself with your friends once they get over and there was really like no sign of any cooking being done but then uh, over the course of like 10 minutes she just kind of like pulled out all these great snacks that she had um, I think she bought them at a farmer's market she washed these great they're really fresh juicy beautiful carrots threw out a wedge of cheese like emptied a box of these great crackers into a bowl and it was just this like came together in minutes and it ended up being this like incredibly memorable meal for myself and Vince and my husband. We talked about it all the time and then we were replicating it through the pandemic. And then, I don't know, just sort of like, I didn't think of it as like snacks for lunch at that time, but I, I, I saw these like small, easy things sort of like coming together in this really fun way that satisfied my nutritional needs. And it was like really fun to eat at the table and it was really delicious. And that's kind of where, where the book and the idea for, for the book came from. And mostly what you post and you talk about the way you eat is vegetarian. Um, and in your book, in the dip chapter, you have a recipe for a vegan ricotta. Now, vegan cheeses can be complicated. They could be amazing. Is this one hard to make? 
It is not that hard to make. It's very, um, it's, a, it's a really simple process. You essentially blend up um, cashews and then you quickly ferment them using a, a probiotic capsule. And this is like, um, this is a very, you know, vegan cheese has become incredibly evolved over the past couple of years. And rather than trying to like create a cheese-like product, we're taking these new milks and uh, using cheese making techniques to sort of create new cheeses. This is a very simple style of a vegan cheese and the probiotic capsule kind of like ferments and creates a tanginess in the blended cashews. And so you leave it out overnight, um, you know, about a day, you could kind of go by taste that starts to smell a little bit tangy and smell a little bit funky. And then you just move it to the fridge where it keeps for, for a week or more than a week. And it has a creaminess, very similar to ricotta. It has a slightly different, you know, uh, flavor. It's a, it's a little bit more on the tangy front, but um, it's a really wonderful addition to any kind of cheese port. And then I often find that it's like a great ingredient to have on hand, like I incorporate it into a recipe for um, pierogies later in the book. You know, it really, like with the tanginess, is just like incredibly delicious right there because the, you know, traditionally you'd use like a farmer's cheese, which has that tang and this really delivers on that front. So, I mean, it has a lot of um, applications. In the book, you have a chapter on chips and crackers, and I don't want you to give away everything from the book because I want everyone to get it because it really is a great book. But what is the secret to truly thin, crisp pita chips? I am glad you brought that up. I have found every time I've tried to make pita chips on my own, they end up being just kind of like a dried out pita. And so they, um, it's just like two, it's almost like I don't know. It doesn't, it, it, it's overwhelming when you're trying to use it as a chip or as a vessel for something. And so what I do is I actually flatten out each, I split each pita and then I flatten it out with a rolling pin to ensure that it gets really thin. And this um, actually makes it kind of like crackly, much more like a chip than like a dried out pita. And then um, using a, a sort of liberal amount of olive oil um, just makes it nice and rich as well. And there is a chapter in your book on slightly larger dishes. And there was one in particular that just, it is so beautifully photographed. The recipe looks amazing. It's a savory pear tart. And it sort of reminded me a bit of a pisella d'air, the Provencal tart of caramelized onions and herbs. Tell me about this tart and where did the idea come from to use pears as a savory ingredient? Yeah, I have been making that a version of that recipe for a long time. It's um, in fact, um, it, is uh, one of the recipes that sort of came about because um, my mom would always keep puff pastry in the fridge and it was this like quick appetizer or an hors d'oeuvre is what she would always call them. Uh, it provided a, you know, you can kind of like, she would wrap up like a wheel of brie or do, you know, a number of different things with, with the puff pastry. So I've always thought of puff pastry as like a shortcut to some kind of tart or appetizer. And I used to make this one in particular uh, with apples. So the process is you just roll out the puff pastry and then um, I sometimes I'll put like a hard cheese on the bottom and then I'd put the apples on top. And then I always like to make a sort of like seasoned salt to sprinkle on the top of that as well. With this recipe, um, I sort of leaned in that piece la uh, direction and threw some um, Dijon mustard as the base underneath the pears. The pears, I think, came about because I happened to see them at the farmer's market and they looked really delicious and I wanted to try it out. You know, they're oftentimes a lot juicier than apples. So it's, um, it, it almost makes the, the dish a little bit more substantial in that way. And it's definitely like incredibly flavorful. Lucas Volger, you're an amazing foodie. Your recipes are great. I think everybody needs to follow you on Instagram. 
and they need to get hold of your new book, Snacks for Dinner. Great. Good luck with it. And thanks for sharing some thoughts on snack cooking with us. Oh, thank you so much, Bruce. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Well, it was everything I hoped for and a whole lot more. So, (laughs) which is what you can say about almost nothing in life. (laughs) It's certainly what you... He was a lot of fun to talk to. You can't say that about dating so everything i hope for you haven't been more. dating as far as i know in a long time 26 years bruce and i have been together as of this month 26 years 26 years i think you can cut our relationship open and count the rings i mean it is <laughs> we that, could use an apple quarter for that oh no <laughs> only if you cut our relationship in half widthwise and then use the apple core wow we're just really wrapping everything back around on itself constantly <laughs> okay our last segment is traditionally what's making us happy in food this week so i'm going to start out and say okay. that my brother and his family were here and i texted my niece about what she wanted for dessert, and she asked for a vanilla sheet cake with vanilla icing. And so, what's making me happy in food this week is vanilla sheet cake with vanilla icing. Bruce, I should as just, plain as can be. It is as plain as can be. But I should tell you that Bruce and I wrote a book called Sheet Cakes and Slab Pies, in which everything is made in a thirteen by eighteen inch pan. Giant. In other words, this is the feed your entire southern kin kind of sheet cake in huge slabs. And uh, we ate sheet cake for days. And it made me very happy. What's making you happy in food this week? Watermelon's back, baby. It's June, and watermelon is back. And I am going for it. No, I eat about two of those. I'm going to just keep saying no. Giant pig-sized watermelons a week. No. And here's why I say no. It's because we live in northern rural New England, and watermelon is not back in New England. And I will only eat watermelon when it is in season in New England, which means I have about a day and a half in August. But the local watermelons are just so full of seeds. I like seedless watermelon, and I start eating it now. And I you don't know anything about spitting seeds. You don't know. It's disgusting. I just want to eat my watermelon in peace. Can I just eat my watermelon in peace? No, you can't. You have to become one of my family and spit watermelon <laughs> seeds off the porch because that's what we did when I was a kid. And if it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you. So there's the whole theory of getting old. If it was good enough for me, it's now good enough for you. Okay, so that's the podcast, Cookie with Bruce and Mark. We thank you for being a part of our podcast. Thanks for being on this journey with us on food shortages, which isn't very a happy journey, but also with Lucas Folger and Snacks for Dinner. Thanks, Lucas, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for being a part of this podcast. We are so glad you found us. You can find us even more if you find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and look for the Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. We'd be happy to connect with you there. We are always happy to connect with you. We'll see you next time.